Mortimer, Episode 5. Thank you for tuning in to Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Mortimer is an entire novel that you may decide to read in print or digital form. Yet each episode of this audio podcast is broken up into a serial of sorts for your enjoyment. We hope you enjoy this duty-free audio presentation of Mortimer. wonderful love stories in my day on the radio, and now I've heard that our very own Georgetown will be featured. Oh, heavens, I am so tickled. Mr. Anderson had been an employee of the company long before the move and had fallen for Ellie the moment he'd laid eyes on her. At the time, Ellie was in her mid-thirties and she bragged of long, elegant, chocolate-coloured hair, lips that were the colour of Bing cherries and a smile that could dazzle a eunuch. John shifted in his seat and straightened the stack of papers. Time had aged her, of course. Her hair was now streaked with grey, though he admitted to himself... It looked rather elegant, piled atop her head. Her face was wrinkled with age, but her eyes were still bright as the morning sun over the deep blue ocean. Another note appeared in front of him. How did she look? Before John could turn to his companion, something Mr. Wolfenstein said caught his attention. Of course, Mr. Mortimer Iscariot will be surveyed by the board before the company is officially signed over. What? John involuntarily spat. Mr. Wolfenstein furrowed his brow. Since you're his uncle, I'd like you to contact him, John, and make sure that he's able to come to the committee meeting next week to discuss the details. Details about what? Mr. Wolfenstein looked at the ceiling and moved his lips like he was counting to ten. Then his grey eyes met with John's. "'About Mortimer taking his rightful place as president of the company.' "'The air was humid, thick and heavy. "'A brown pleated boot crushed the forest floor "'as Mortimer took another wary step forward. "'His dark, beady eyes looked right and then left. "'The forest was rugged with seemingly impenetrable layers of flora and fauna. "'He could hardly see a thing. "'To compensate, he moved carefully and with great precision.' A small spoon that he had commandeered from his custard dish glistened in the low lighting. Grasping the spoon in his left hand, now he aimed it in front of him for protection. Leather-bound binoculars hung about his neck, and his trusty captain's hat was perched atop his mop of unruly hair. It served to shelter his head from any sort of aerial onslaught. He looked up now, the rest of his body frozen in place, and watched carefully for signs of movement, signs of a predator. Seeing nothing, he took another step forward. The leader of the misanthropic brigade had delivered the commission, and Mortimer took his mission quite seriously. They had no idea that he was, of course, going to modify the orders. 
Captain Mortimer! The leader's hands were carefully tucked into the front of his camouflage pants. We require the wood from the Sequoia to build a ship. A ship, you say? Mortimer's interest had been immediately piqued, for he was in fact a captain, one of the most skilled metallos on the Pacific Ocean at that. Yes, a ship that can survive on land as well as on water. But we're in a forest. What's this you say about water? Another asked. The leader of the clan looked him square in the eye. There was a time on this earth that the land was the sea and the sea was the land. It won't be long before a day like this arrives again. You mean it will flood? The battalions started to tremble nervously. Yes! A blast of thunder accentuated the doomful declaration. Oh! The men all jumped in fear, their faces simultaneously turning toward Mortimer, who stood on the outside of the group. His hat lowered over his eyes. Captain Mortimer will save us! These words echoed in Mortimer's head now, and he froze, looking around in the darkness. His nautical sense told him that he was not alone. There it was again. To his side, a scurry of paws scuffled across the forest floor. He whipped around to the right and put the binoculars to his face and peered into the dark depths of the rainforest. Show yourself! Mortimer thrust the spoon menacingly forward. Come out of there, you insolent hook-nosed fleshmonger! Don't shoot! A massive bush shook as its inhabitants spoke. Ah, he was right. He wasn't alone. Come out with your hands up, he demanded bravely. He thanked God he'd remembered to steal the weapon earlier that evening. Eugene! A pair of eyes peeked out from behind the briar. Mortimer lowered the spoon. My word! Shh! Eugene! She crept toward Mortimer in the darkness and then whispered, I'm looking for apples. I am the captain. You rank behind me. Take your place. I brought a music box. She proudly displayed what appeared to be a bar of soap. But before Mortimer could protest, a sound thundered from above. Mortimer followed his instincts in the moments that followed. Without looking up or even thinking about it, and with admirably quick reflexes, Mortimer hit the deck. His behemoth of a body plastered against the safari soil, his arms and legs bent like a gecko as he lay there motionless. After several moments, and with a whoop, his mother followed suit, face-planting next to Mortimer on the ground. They lay perfectly still together, listening as the scuffling sounds above continued. It sounded like the gods were walking throughout the heavens. Had they been heard? Mortimer held his breath and waited for what seemed to be an eternity. The leaves of the trees rustled just a bit, and then there were footsteps. They approached from behind, but it was far too dark to see anything. The forest was too thick. The steps hesitated, and then after a moment's silence, they turned and went back the way they came. Several minutes later, there was a second clap of thunder, and then everything was still once again. Finally, Mortimer determined it was safe to resume his journey. I would advise you to keep your mouth shut, he hissed at the heap next to him. Don't you talk to me that way, came the muffled reply. Mortimer pushed himself up onto all fours and began to crawl. The woman followed suit, but at least this time, Mortimer noticed, she stayed obediently behind him. I always say, she muttered as she huffed along, Wash your face before you go to church. 
Mist swirled around the woodland floor as they moved, pulling its cool dust of moisture across their hands. The leaves of the trees were motionless, for there was no breeze, but there was, in the distance, an ever-so-slight wash of pale white light. The moon peeked subtly through the leaves of the massive forest trees. Mortimer secured the binoculars beneath his shirt and advanced more quickly, trying to increase the distance between himself and the interloper. Eugene, wait for me! The sequoia was just beyond, he knew it. Mortimer crawled with increased determination, turning corners and climbing over hills and down into valleys. The spoon clanked on the ground. His breath came out in rugged panting as his rolls jiggled with the effort. "'Crawling, crawling, crawling for apples,' she muttered, surprisingly spry on all fours. He was crafting the ship in his mind. The angle of the stern, the components of the keel. While the wood of the majestic sequoia would make up the winch and hull, he would also require some fabric for the mainsail. But first he needed to cut down the tree. They crawled uninterrupted through the darkness, and then came to an even darker room. Mortimer stopped at the precipice and surveyed the surroundings. The only sound was his own panting and the scurrying of the woman, who, thanks to him stopping, was now able to catch up. What is it? I should like a machete. Mortimer rolled from his hands and knees position back onto his rump. He scratched his head, making careful calculations of the tree's dimensions, and contemplated on how to leverage his spoon in a way that might result in his goals being accomplished. I'll find it. Mortimer's accomplice leapt up from the ground and took off like a streak. A moment later she was back. Mortimer was still scratching his head, his face scrunched in deliberation. He glanced over at her now, and then he did a double take, for in her tiny hand, glinting in the darkness, was a massive blade. Her grin was wide. For cutting apples! Brilliant! Mortimer took the machete from her wrinkled hand. Finally the tree will be mine! She sat back on her haunches, licking her lips wildly, as Mortimer put his knife between his teeth and crawled forward. He looked at the tree in satisfaction one last time. Bon voyage, he said cheerfully, and then went back to work, cutting and sawing in the darkness. He sawed for hours, and eventually his associate fell asleep in the corner of the clearing. But Mortimer would not be dissuaded. The tree would be his, come rain or come shine. Many hours later, Mortimer finished. He kicked the foot of the slumbering woman, rousing her awake. I've already had my milk, she murmured, groggy from sleep. Mortimer put a pudgy finger to his lips to silence her, and pointed to the stack of wood in the center of the room. As the first rays of sun began to peek through the leaves, they packed up what lumber they could. Arms heavy with the finest sequoia wood the rainforest could offer, they carried it back to camp. The scream pitched to the mansion like that of a screeching owl. Neville had just put the finishing touches to his bow tie, and his hands startled at the horrific sound from below. He turned on his heel and yanked open the door to his humble quarters. He dashed out of his room and down the hall. He met Mrs. Dixon at the top of the stairs. Did you hear that? They scurried down the stairs together. Yes, it was Mrs. Peabody, Mrs. Dixon huffed, her hand grasping the railing for balance as they descended. They reached the front foyer and went right, cutting through the living area and toward the back of the house. Mrs. Peabody stood at the doors to the dining room with her hands to her face and her eyes wide in shock. 
Mrs. Peabody, what is it? Neville was at her side in a moment. Mrs. Dixon pushed past them, and her heart stopped in alarm. What happened? Mrs. Dixon reached for the door frame for stability. I, I, I just, I just, oh, it's, it's terrible. Mrs. Peabody burst into tears. There, there, Neville tried to be soothing. Come into the kitchen, sit down and tell us everything. I heard a scream. What happened? Millie appeared behind them, wearing her uniform of a grey dress with a crisp white apron at her waist. Millie, go put the tea on. Mrs. Dixon turned away from the travesty in the dining room and went to Mrs. Peabody's other arm. I agree with Neville. Let us go into the kitchen. Mrs. Peabody did not protest, but allowed the two to guide her through the foyer and into the massive kitchen of the Iscariot mansion. Millie was obediently lighting a fire on the stove. Her expression was worried, and she looked over her shoulder as Neville and Mrs. Dixon led the house's cook to the kitchen table. Now, Felinda, tell us what happened, Mrs. Dixon ordered. She and Neville sat down and patiently waited as Mrs. Peabody took several deep breaths and tried to calm down. I don't know. I can hardly say. Her grey curls bobbed as she shook her head. I came down to start breakfast, and uh, that is what I found. Mr. Iscariot's prized possession destroyed. Millie put the water on and rushed toward the trio. What happened? Millie, hush! Mrs. Dixon waved her away. No one paid any attention as Millie left the room to go to see what all the fuss was about. Did you see anybody? Mrs. Peabody shook her head again. I was the first up. Uh, no one had come down yet, she sighed, her eyes filling again. Oh, Elizabeth, what will Mrs. Iscariot say? I hardly think she will notice, Neville decided. She hasn't eaten in the dining room in months. That's not the point, Mrs. Dixon gave him a cross look, and you know it. I'm sure that Mr. Iscariot is rolling over in his grave. Mrs. Peabody made the figure of a cross over her chest. She looked from Mrs. Dixon to Neville. Who would do such a thing? Mrs. Peabody blanched. Oh, no. Do you think he did it? He who? asked Mrs. Dixon. The, Mrs. Peabody lowered her voice. The blackmailer. Of course not, Mrs. Dixon said quickly. We sent the payment as requested. He has no reason to do such a thing. Neville nodded in confirmation. I spoke with Mr. Albright myself. The payment was left at the designated spot as instructed. There, you see? There must be another explanation. This seemed to quiet Mrs. Peabody's nerves for a moment, the colour returning to her cheeks, but then she burst into another fit of tears. But who could have done such a thing? Neville, you did rounds before retiring last evening, did you not? Mrs. Dixon stroked Mrs. Peabody's back soothingly. Yes, as I always do, Neville straightened his bow tie, uncomfortable being called into question. And you saw nothing? Well, of course not. Neville sounded defensive, so he took a slow breath. The doors were locked, windows secured. Did you go into the dining room? Well, you can hardly expect me to go into every room in the mansion. No, I suppose not. Mrs. Dixon focused her attention back to Mrs. Peabody. You are sure you saw no one else? It's hopeless, Elizabeth. What shall we do? Heavens! Millie rushed in breathless. 
Someone's chopped up the dining room table. A newspaper was open in front of his austere face, but Lily Lou knew by the tingle on the back of her neck that her father was bathing in a wash of derision. She stood in the doorway, wearing a lovely yellow dress that went past her knees, her hair in a sensible chignon at the nape of her neck. Ask him, her mother's voice hissed from behind her. Always the perfect, demure wife, Mrs. Longhorn irrevocably deferred to her husband when their daughter made a request. Liddy Lou shot a look over her shoulder at her mother. I can feel the both of you staring at me from the doorway. Mr. Longhorn's deep voice boomed. Lily Lou couldn't help but jump at his tone. Her mother jabbed her in the ribcage. Uh, uh, yes, father. Lily Lou entered the room a step. Her primary objective was to get away from her mother, who seemed to desire to live vicariously through her. Mr. Longhorn lowered the paper. Ah, my alabaster doll. You do look lovely this morning. Mr. Longhorn's typical menacing look had softened now as he gazed upon his daughter. Adoration gleamed in his eye, for she truly was his pride and joy. His eldest and only other child, Reginald Longhorn III, was a reformed wildcat. Though he had quite restored his reputation upon joining the clergy some years back, Mr. Longhorn could not quite forgive his son for the misery of unscrupulous behaviour he had bestowed upon the Longhorn name. Lily Lou, however, had remained to this day a true lady of integrity and honour. Thank you, Father. Emboldened, Lily Lou took another step into the formal sitting room. Darling, I can see you in the doorway there. Why don't you come in and pour me another cup of tea? Mr. Longhorn folded his paper. It seemed to him that the women in his life had something to discuss with him, and though the newspaper was particularly interesting that day, he knew that the Longhorn ladies were relentless when they had an idea. Of course, darling. Mrs. Longhorn swept elegantly into the room, her silken skirts flowing about her slender body, quite the opposite in shape from her massively framed husband. Mr. Longhorn was by no means obese. Rather, he was chiseled and cut from years of working in the shipping industry. He'd started from the ground and worked his way up. His hands were roughened from years of manual labour. On the left lower angle of his jaw was a scar— that he had acquired in his early twenties whilst working in the shipping yard. During their courtship, that scar had been a primary object of attraction. It gave him an edge, which quite nicely contrasted the abstemious and self-disciplined persona that he'd worked resentlessly to perfect. Lily Lou situated herself on the paisley sofa that rested on the wall adjacent to her father. "'What are you reading about today, father?' Mr. Longhorn's face scrunched up his moustache curling up on either side of his dimpled cheeks. The indignity that is occurring on the streets of New York City. Mrs. Longhorn approached him with a porcelain teacup in her dainty grasp. Eager for gossip, she handed her husband his tea. Uh, what's happening in the city? I do not want to trouble your pretty little heads about it, said Mr. Longhorn, taking a sip. After a moment's hesitation, he went on, it seems to be that the youth of today are engaging in some felonious behaviours. Oh? Mrs. Longhorn was all ears. Yes, indeed, Mr. Longhorn looked at his daughter. Shameful the way the juveniles are behaving these days. There are things going on that I won't even allow to cross the threshold of your ears. 
Lily Lou felt her ears burning. Had he learned of the speakeasies that had been popping up all over the country? With prohibition going into effect just a few months back, it was nearly impossible to have fun anymore. She clenched her hands in her lap as her father went on. I'm so glad to have the peace of mind knowing that you, Lily Lou, are not engaging in any iniquitous behaviours. Oh, of course not, Papa. Now, tell me, my dear ladies, what is it that I can help you with? Do you require money to go into town? Would you like to go on another trip? Uh, Papa, you know how you always tell me that I should be seeking to improve my mind and the family name? Her father nodded. Quite right. I do not want my future son-in-law chastising me about having a dim-witted wife. Well, um, I've been given an opportunity to see some theatre, uh, uh, go to museums, Lily Lou began, reminding herself to keep her hands neatly folded in her lap the way her mother was sitting. To see theatre? Mr. Longhorn narrowed his eyes. What kind of theatre? Not anything disreputable, I would hope. Oh, of course not, Papa. Lily Lou shook her head violently, and then she took another slow breath. You see, Cindy's family is going to spend the week in the city. Out of the question, Mr. Longhorn declared without allowing his daughter to finish. But, Papa, darling, do be reasonable, Mrs. Longhorn interjected from her end of the couch. Mr. Longhorn's expression, however, told the two women that his mind was made up. I know that Miss Appleton is a friend of yours, but I cannot allow you to travel anywhere with that family. That family? Lily Lou was indignant. What do you mean? You know that her family is decidedly beneath your own, Mr. Longhorn sniffed. Her parents are hardly concerned with propriety, and I don't like the way that young woman is permitted to gallivant around town without a chauffeur. Mr. Appleton is in banking. I hardly call that beneath us. Her father was unmoved. Why don't you spend more time with the Lakesmith girl? Mr. Longhorn looked at his wife for assistance. What's her name? Milfred. Ah, yes, he nodded in approval. Now that is a family. Oh, she's so boring. Didn't she win some kind of award recently, darling? Oh, I, I do believe she got a blue ribbon at the state fair, his wife nodded. Her needlepoint is admirable. Oh. Lily Lou stood up and started to storm from the room. Lily Lou, I do trust you see the reason in my decision. I can hardly understand why you insist on ruining all my fun. She folded her arms crossly. You see, I've been studying the latest research on child upbringing, an activity I hope for you to engage in one day. Mrs. Longhorn nodded in agreement. Uh, yes, of course. Watson speaks quite eloquently on the topic of misbehavior, and I find this to be particularly relevant considering the recent degradation of morality in society. Uh, yes, his wife nodded again. Watson, you see, O oh daughter of mine, emphasizes in particular prevention. Then, of course, if necessary, your mother and I have implemented precautions that will provide an aversive stimulus to the mere contemplation of engaging in any iniquitous activities. Iniquitous activities? Lily Lou let her jaw drop. We can never be too careful. I am not Reginald. Mrs. Longhorn angled toward her daughter. What's your tone, darling? <laughs> Lily Lou threw her hands into the air and stormed from the room. 
I'm going for a walk. Don't go too far. Her mother's voice followed her into the hallway as Lily Lou grasped her parasol and fur wrap. Hands trembling with frustration, she threw the fur about her shoulders and yanked the heavy glass-pane doors open. Without looking back, she slammed them behind her. Mrs. Longhorn looked across the room at her husband. That didn't go well, she observed aloud. Mr. Longhorn shrugged, picking up his newspaper again. My job is to protect my daughter. I do not prefer the likes of that Appleton girl. Something about her makes my stomach churn. Oh, I do quite agree, Mrs. Longhorn nodded. We can only hope that our daughter does not go down the same path as her brother. Cotter tapped tobacco into the ivory-handled pipe and waited. He was accustomed to waiting. In fact, most of police work involved waiting. Admittedly, upon signing up to join the police force, his ideal placement had not been the sleepy port city of Georgetown. Carter had imagined Chicago or New York, where the energy was manic and the crimes maniacal. But his time in Georgetown had been surprisingly pleasant, not to mention his fortuitous placement had landed him smack dab in the centre of one of the biggest crimes of the century, and he had been the officer that made the arrest. He'd been promoted and was interviewed by dozens of writers. They gave him the surname, The Officer in Black. The name had quite a ring and suited Carter just fine. The door chimed and a young man entered. Carter observed his pupil with derision as he clenched his hat from the doorway, unripened eyes darting back and forth in search of his superior. Mercifully, Carter gestured vaguely from the booth, gaining the man's attention who looked decidedly relieved. Orange hurried over, taking a misstep and wrapping his knee on the podium that stood near the entrance, displaying the daily special. Ouch! His face flushed. He slid into the booth. I didn't see that there. Without missing a beat, Carter slid a folder across the booth and went to work lighting his pipe. I have to say, sir, that it's an honour to work with you, Orange said, accepting the folder. The work you did with the Iscariot case two years ago made national news. It's surreal to be here. I... You will need to memorize the daughter in that folder. Carter waved out the match. It describes your duties and gives a line-by-line -line description of different scenarios that you may come across and what I expect for you to do. Orange opened the folder and squinted at the small font. There are a lot of scenarios. I expect you to memorize them all by Monday. Your preliminary training will include shooting, investigation of mock scenarios, interrogation, and self-defense. Oh, I, I learned this in the academy. Carter puffed on his pipe and glared across the table. Another thing, Orange. If you're going to be on my team, comments like that will not be permitted. Understood. Fine. Carter pushed up from the booth, leaving a few coins in front of him. Is that all? What more do you want to know? "'What about the meeting you had with the Sarge?' he lowered his voice. "'I heard it had to do with the Iscariot case.' Orange did not notice that his comment had gotten the attention of some patrons of the restaurant. Carter was at his side in a moment, his face dark. "'Lesson one, Orange. Investigative business is not to be discussed in a public café.' Orange's ears reddened. Boy, was he a blockhead. Uh, "'Understood, sir.' Carter surveyed him for a moment. Sergeant said you were top of your class. Orange brightened. I was. 
then you better start acting like it. He puffed silver swirling smoke into Orange's face before he walked away again. The bell atop the door of the cafe chimed as he made his departure. The wind whipped through her hair as Lily Lou hurried down the cobblestone drive to the gates that surrounded the massive family property. How could her father be so unreasonable? She clenched her jaw and picked up speed, as she desired to increase the distance between her and the house before it became evident that she had, in fact, left unaccompanied. Guards stood at the intricately woven iron gate. They bowed slightly as she approached. "'Shall you require a ride into town?' the one on the left inquired. Uh, "'No, no, I'm only taking a walk.' Lily Lou rewarded him with a sensual smile. "'And if my father asks, tell him I'm going to the park.' "'Yes, miss.' Lily Lou hurried on in the direction opposite the park. Her thoughts ran amuck as she made her way toward town. She recalled with disdain how her father had quite effectively chased away every suitor, turned his nose up at countless party invitations, and squashed every last dream of a good time. It was Reginald's fault, she knew, and perhaps her anger was a bit misappropriated. However, her father was a grown man, and he should know that his daughter was nobody's fool. She was quite sensible, actually, unlike her idiot brother. She hadn't been caught. A smile played at her lips, for unbeknownst to her overprotective parents, she had managed to maintain the reputation of the perfect, generous daughter of the famously opulent philanthropist while getting a taste of fun. Almost no one knew about her wild side. She turned the corner and approached Charleston Road, and her heart did a little dance. She continued east, but her eyes followed the road west. She knew from memory that Charleston would stretch into the countryside until it connected with the Iscariot property. The Iscariot Manor was one of the finest in the south. Once upon a time, Mr. Iscariot would throw the most lovely and lavish parties. When the family had moved to Georgetown over twenty years ago, Mr. Iscariot had insisted upon filling the many rooms with the finest ornaments that money could buy. Each room had a theme— some were decorated in the style of the French, while others were more reminiscent of the British, and several of the rooms were decorated like a Moroccan sanctuary. Mr. Iscariot, as the owner of the Centennial Shipping Line, had been a world traveller, and he had spared no expense in building his family's castle. This was in direct contrast to Lily Lou's father. Mr. Longhorn, in fact, was insatiably pragmatic. Each room in his house had a particular purpose and utility. Mr. and Mrs. Longhorn had selected furniture that matched room to room, with no embellishments. It was as boring as it was sensible. The Longhorn mansion was grand, to be sure, Lily Lou had to concede, but it was decidedly unimaginative and most assuredly uninspiring. Lily Lou waved to a carriage that zipped past, the passengers being Mr. and Mrs. Albright. Mr. Albright was the barrister of the Iscariots, while his wife, Mrs. Albright, was one of the most informed town gossips. Therefore, Lily Lou found their association to have its advantages. She waved politely as they drove by. After the carriage had passed, Lily Lou turned onto Main Street. In addition to being the exact opposite of her family, the Iscariots held a particular element of mystery for her. This seemed to be the general consensus, for the Iscariots were the favourite topic of the town gossip. Once upon a time, much of the talk had surrounded the family's fortunes and travels, that is, until Mr. Iscariot's disappearance. 
Since that fateful evening two years earlier, everything had changed. No more parties, no more luncheons, and significantly fewer opportunities for the families to socialise. Rumour had it that Mrs. Iscariot had gone insane after the mysterious passing of her husband, and that the nanny, Mrs. Dixon, had all but taken over running the home. Lily Lou had little opportunity to confirm or deny this claim, for the last time she remembered having seen Mrs. Iscariot was at the Markingham Gala, and that was at least a year and a half in the past. Hardly a sufficient window of time to conduct a psychological analysis. She wondered what Mortimer was up to at the moment. A part of a long to turn back and walk the opposite direction on Charleston Road instead of continuing on her current trajectory. But Mortimer was yet to express any real interest in courting her. Lily Lou sighed. This was likely due to the reputation her father had created for her, the richest but most unattainable lady in town. It would take more than a slight interest to motivate a young man to cross through the iron gates of the Longhorn Manor. However, Lily Lou reminded herself, Mortimer had accompanied her to the church the other week, and Mortimer almost never went anywhere. He was too brilliant for most people and quite severely misunderstood. He also never groveled at her feet like other young men did, whilst his bright, intelligent eyes always seemed miles away. Lily Lou longed to be miles away. After several moments, Lily Lou reached the intersection at the centre of town. Making a quick decision, she turned west and walked toward the harbour on the edge of town. It was no matter that the harbour also happened to be another of Mortimer's haunts. It was also one of the best places in town for shopping. And after her severe disappointment with her father that morning, a trinket and some fresh air was in order. She wasn't going there to see Mortimer, Lily Lou reminded herself. There were plenty of other reasons to go to the port. She angled her chin upward and moved with a bit more determination. As she neared the harbour, she spotted the Esquire resting at the dock, the massive ship belonging to the fleet of her family's competitors. The Iscariots had all but built the shipping industry in the United States, but the Longhorn Foundation had benefited from Mr. Iscariot's entrepreneurial spirit, and truly the two families had quite effectively capitalized on each other's success. Despite her loyalty to her family's fleet, the Iscariot's Esquire was admittedly the most incredible ship she had ever seen. It was colossal, with waxen sails, gleaming ebony wood, and detailed embellishments cut into twisting pillars. "'Are you coming to the festival next week?' a voice asked. Lily Lou turned around and saw a boy carrying a stack of flyers grinning up at her. "'Oh, uh, a festival? Two weekends. Uh, the first is to celebrate the departure of the Esquire.' He handed her a flyer. "'Both weekends there will be a parade and candy, uh, but if you want to tour the ship, you, you'll have to go this weekend.' "'I will definitely attend. Thank you.' Lily Lou rewarded him with a smile. He gave her a grin in return, revealing several teeth missing, before zipping off to distribute more flyers. She read while she walked, but then, several steps later, she slammed directly into a solid figure of a young man. Oh! she cried out, dropping the flyer. So sorry, the man's face reddened. She noticed that he carried a folder with a Georgetown precinct emblem on the cover. Uh, my fault, really? Lily Lou averted her eyes. The last thing she needed was to cause trouble with a cop. Here, I think you dropped this. Thanks. Then a voice came from behind. Lily Lou, baby. 
Upon hearing her name, Lily Lou turned around. Herbert, how are you? He was wearing a charcoal-coloured suit, a bowler rested atop a sandy blonde hair, and a fashionable cane was in his right hand. He raised his other hand in the air as he approached her. She turned back to apologise to the young officer again, but he'd already crossed the rest of the way across the thoroughfare and was on his way out of town. "'You look more lovely than the last time I saw you.' Herbert pulled her close, kissed each cheek before stepping back to admire her. "'Oh, you're all flattery,' Lily Lou waved dismissively. Uh, "'Who was that?' he angled his head after the cop. "'Nobody,' Lily Lou changed the subject. "'Are you out on business?' Herbert was an apprentice to his father, who was in banking. He accepted her diversion. "'I'm out for a stroll. It was becoming fairly drab in the office.' I'm awful glad I did, too, now that you're here. Lily Lou ignored the lascivious look he gave her. They just let you leave whenever you want? But when your father's the boss, you can do whatever you want, Herbert winked. Care to take a turn with me? Lily Lou looked around the park once more, disappointment sinking in her stomach when her eyes did not find the object of her affection. She reluctantly agreed and accepted his arm. He led her down toward the docks, where the vendors had booths set up. "'What brings you into town today? I didn't see the car.' "'Oh, I walked.' "'From home?' Herbert was stunned. "'Isn't that several miles?' "'Oh, I have two proper functioning legs.' Mm, "'It's highly improper,' Lily Lou snorted. "'Since when were you interested in being proper?' "'When it comes to one of my girls, I'm a bit more particular.' "'One of your girls?' Lilou looked up into his face, a curious smile on her lips. Just how many girls did you have? Now telling you that would be highly improper. Lily Lou suppressed the urge to roll her eyes and allowed Herbert to guide her along the crowded dock. Oh, hey, I, I forgot to tell you, Herbert lowered his voice. Frank said that the cottage is a go. Are you in? I haven't decided, she answered somewhat truthfully. Oh, don't be a wet blanket. Herbert touched his hat in greeting to a finely dressed couple as they passed. That was Mr. and Mrs. Poppins. Mr. Poppins is in town from the city, surveying a plot of land for his insurance business. Insurance? It's business, baby. Herbert pulled his wallet out of his front pocket. Care for an ice cream cone? Mortimer! Why are you bringing that cat's name up? Herbert was annoyed. Lily Lou had some sort of an unusual infatuation with that creature, he thought, and he'd heard about enough of it. But at that very moment he saw what attracted Lily Lou's attention and stopped short, staring at the scene ahead. "'You have tarnished my lapel!' Mortimer bellowed with outrage. He'd just purchased an ice cream cone from a street vendor and was at present using one of the festival flyers to indignantly wipe ash frantically from his jacket's collar. The object of his attention was wearing an army green khaki suit, that placed him as one of the many low-level dock assistants that worked primarily in the manual labor of fixing, lifting, and hauling things pertaining to the shipyard's inner workings. He had a cigar between tobacco-stained lips and a scar cut across his eyebrow. He spat on the ground next to Mortimer's massive feet and gave him a menacing look. Back off, fella! There are several steps that go into maintaining the integrity of the woven material that consists of each lapel. Any compromise that it endures results in hours of manual labor by my nanny. Herbert, do something. Lily Lou grasped Herbert's sleeve as Mortimer's opponent turned a dark shade of burgundy red. 
I don't give a lick about your nanny. Odysseus himself never had to endure the countless droves of imbeciles that seemed to wander the docks near this majestic ship. Why, even Poseidon himself bowed down to the majesty of his greatness. Are you calling me stupid? Quite a crowd had gathered by now. Some were cheering at them while others were heckling Mortimer and his adversary. Punch him! Knock his lights out! That fat guy just called you dumb. What are you gonna do about it? Mortimer raised his ice cream cone and shouted above the rest, Even the sirens that close their mouths to the villainous cries that have pierced the night, casting not a spell on the resplendent skipper. Oh, yeah? The shorter man stood as tall as possible, trying to maintain his dignity. His eyes darted nervously toward the crowd that formed the circle around them. What are you going to do about it? Lily Lou abandoned Herbert and rushed to the edge of the mass. She gasped as Mortimer hesitated in a moment of uncharacteristic silence. She knew exactly what he was going to do next, and it wasn't going to be pretty. Mortimer, no! With a decisive nod, Mortimer turned and cried, In the honor of Odysseus, I slay thee! And with a vigorous thrust, he pushed his ice-cream cone into his rival's abhorrent, gaping maw. A woman screamed, and the crowd went wild. Then there were police whistles, pushing, scuffling, shouting emitted from the frenzied mass. Mortimer! Oh, dearest Mortimer! Lily Lou cried above the mass hysteria. Police broke into the mob and tackled the man who was lunging at Mortimer like a rabid dog. I'll kill him! I'll get his lapel and shred it into a million pieces! Let me at him! Settle down there, mister! The gods have smiled upon the saints! Mortimer declared, glaring down his nose at the tyrant. This man assaulted me the other day in the park. Arrest him, cried an extraordinarily old man from the crowd. He was wearing a soot-gray trench coat, and he shook his ivory cane to punctuate his testimony. Put your arms up, an officer demanded. Mortimer paid him no mind and went to work licking what remained of his fairly intact ice cream cone. His reverie did not last long, however, for the second batch of police was atop him in an instant, handcuff in hand. Mortimer shrieked, Ah! and he burst forth from the tackle, turning toward them and wielding his dessert in the air between them threateningly. Put down the ice cream cone, an officer demanded. Lily Lou pressed her hands to her cheeks and watched with horror as Mortimer lunged at the officer. By great Poseidon's mighty wind, I slay thee! He smashed the cone into the shocked policeman's face. Hiya! Bert, help! I can't see. I have ice cream in my eye. Mortimer's victim dropped his baton. Mortimer turned to his second opponent. No, you don't, the officer commanded. He raised his baton in distraction as another approached from behind Mortimer and smacked him behind the knee. Hiya! Mortimer's arms flailed, and his ice cream flew through the air. He did a belly flop onto the grass. Mortimer! Learn more at www.mortimerbook.com Copyright 2022, M.W. Cedars Written by M.W. Cedars, the author pseudonym Audiobook performance by Michael Drew Neither this author nor affiliates, comrades, patriots, or associates are engaged in rendering professional or non-professional advice, services, recommendations, or any other suggestions of any kind to the individual reader. 
This book is purely fiction, and all opinions and all likenesses of characters, industries, cities, or associations with any place or anyone you know are purely coincidental. Thank you for subscribing to Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Be sure to download the next episode.